Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Not to tell you, people, you know, a few weeks ago, I, you know, I said how Joanne is the shoe ninja, and it's unbelievable. I mean, I get home, I put my shoes down. In, in three seconds, they're already upstairs. And I go, what happened to my shoes? And she goes, I took them upstairs. And I'm like, well, what if I have to go out again? And she says, well, then you can go out. You can go get them. And I also noticed, you know, I've been noticing for a while, she's the queen of toothpaste. It's unbelievable because I sit there, I get frustrated. You know how when, the, when we get to the end of the roll and you squeeze and you squeeze and you squeeze, I just say the hell with it. And I, I get a new uh, roll, uh, not roll, a, a new tube out of the uh, cupboard. But now she, it's amazing. She gets so much toothpaste. I can sit there. I don't know what she does. I don't know if she uses like a hammer or a rolling pin, but she sits there. I can't get it out. I sit there. I go, I know there's at least four more uses. She, it's amazing. So we don't spend a lot of money on toothpaste. I don't, I don't handle it well, but she's great at it. Anyway, that's Joanne for you. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a, we have a, an, act, an actor. Well, I always say actor. I don't say actress. I say actor. And she was part of one of my favorite shows ever. And she has had a great career. And our guest is Catherine Denton. How you doing, Catherine? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Good to see you. Saving toothpaste one day at a time. Are you like that? Are you, do you, like my girlfriend has a sort of OCD type and she cleans and she gets so much usage out of stuff like you like my i have face soap and she'll add a little bit of water when i'm not looking because i'll just throw it away i'm not ocd at all but um one time i actually was just curious and so i cut open a tube of sunscreen because i was just curious how much was left because i couldn't get any more out and i cut it open i cut the tube in half and there was tons of sunscreen in there even after i had like tried to squeeze it out and squeeze it out and so now and like I cut my tubes in half and like scoop out the inside because there's so much left. I think it's the companies because you think about it and even with like mustard, you know, you, you get mustard and it gets on the inside of the jar or mayo and you can't add water and shake it. It's not like, like shampoo a shampoo or, or soup, but like a mustard, you don't want to have watery mustard. But I think that's what they do. Now, now I'm going to look at, into the, uh, the, the tanning lotion uh, because or sun tanning screen, the sunscreen, because th- you're right. They probably just, they screw you. Well, isn't that like the greatest marketing scam of all time on the back of the shampoo bottle that says shampoo, rinse, do do it again? I know. You don't actually need to shampoo twice. Right. Once is enough. But like, it's a big scam to get you to use twice as much project. And they, and they say that you shouldn't shampoo every day. Right. And, and so the thing is... How often do you shampoo? Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, it's, I, actually, it's so funny. <laughs> I do. I actually, this is no like, as you people know, I'm bald. But I, I do sometimes grow it out a little bit. And I use a little shampoo. Like if I get one of those hotel bottles, it'll last me for like seven or eight months. Yeah. So that's crazy. Feels good. Huh? Oh, it's great to just see. I feel very. I feel like I'm a, a young man again. I shampoo. I'm very happy. So now, now you grew up in New Orleans or in the area. I grew up in Baton Rouge. Okay, Baton Rouge. Now, now as a kid, did you always want to act? Uh, not as a little kid. Um, but around junior high, middle school, and junior high. Um, basically what happened, I, I used to tell this story a lot. I haven't told it in a long time, but, but my parents got divorced and were separating when I was 13. Okay. And right around that time I was in the eighth grade and they, we did every year, the eighth graders got to do the school, the eighth grade play. That was the big deal. And, uh, my parents were going through a really rough time and we were kind of having a hard time in the family and stuff with the divorce. And I was cast in the play and I would go to the theater and I could hang out in the theater till two o'clock in the morning as a 13 year old you know, painting sets and building props and that kind of stuff. And it was just a great community. And I felt really comfortable there. And it was a really nice place to be when the, the shit was hitting the fan at home. So I kind of started my love of theater way back then. And then 
from that point on, I was pretty much cast and, you know, the lead in all the school plays. And Now, the, you said you were paying this, just getting to know the theater. So you're really just adapting to the surroundings. I think just you were really getting to love the theater life then. Well, it was, I mean, I was also cast in the play. I was, uh, I was the Wicked Witch of the West. We were doing the, the Wiz of Oz. But um, no, it was the community, I think. I really liked the people. I really enjoyed hanging out. And I don't know, they were theater nerds. And I was, I, I don't yeah, it was safe and good and chill. So as you're doing that, at any time you're sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to go to school for this. I'm going to I'm going to make this my career. Because, I mean, still at 13, 14, 15, we really don't know what we do. I mean, a lot of us went to college and like my degree was in business. And you sit there and you go, okay, I want to go to college. I don't really know what I want to do. And for me, it was like, well, hey, you know what? Business. You know, my, my, my dad was in business. My mom was in business. And I was like, yeah, you can always do something with business. When did you decide you wanted to concentrate on following that dream? Um, it kind of happened the same way you said, yeah, business. I um, I knew I wanted to get out of Baton Rouge. Not that there's anything wrong with Baton Rouge, right. but I needed to get out of Baton Rouge. Um, and I, honest to God, the U.S. News and World Report once a year would put out this best, best college, uh, edition. Do you remember that back in the day, the U.S. News and World Report? Yeah. And I remember, yeah, cause my college, well, my college was so funny, was a, was a state school in New Jersey. Now it's a university and we're actually very like for a liberal arts school. They're very up there now. Where's the school? It's in uh, New Jersey. Uh, I went there. It was called Stockton State College. Now it's Richard Stockton University. Oh, okay. I went there. It was 3250 a credit. Now it's, it's. 22,000 a year. I mean, just the difference. But yeah, I remember that because you'd always look and right, you'd see where you are. the schools and it was the whole edition and it was literally like, you know, a thousand colleges through the country. They were the, and they ranked them, you know, um, large liberal arts, small liberal arts, best state school, best, you know, Ivy League, best private, that kind of thing. And I thought, how am I going to get out of Baton Rouge? Well, my grades weren't really great. Um, so I knew I couldn't shoot for like a really, you know, an Ivy League school that was completely out of the question. And I just was studying this magazine and I was looking for small liberal arts schools that I thought maybe I could get into with my crappy grades. And, and they weren't, you know, back in the day, they weren't that expensive. It wasn't $60,000 a year. It was 3000 a semester, you know, or four, whatever it was. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to go to New York City. And um, there was this college that was listed in U.S. News and World Reports, Marymount, Manhattan, and Geraldine Ferraro had gone there. That was like its claim to fame, you know. And I thought, well, this looks pretty good. Maybe this will be a way to get me into the city. And I went up there. I, I flew up there for a couple of days one summer, and I toured the campus. And they had, uh, in the student lounge, they had a, a binder of um, people looking for jobs. And there were nanny opportunities. And so I thought, maybe if I live, if I'm a nanny, I've got a free place to live. I'll go to school here and uh, that'll be my way in. And so I looked through the binder and I took a couple of numbers and I called a family and she said, come on over. I interviewed. I got hired on the spot and I moved to New York City. I was a live-in nanny going to Marymount, Manhattan, like within six months or a year of graduating from high school. See, that's amazing because you, you know, think about, you know, going to Manhattan. I mean, you know, my brother lives in Manhattan. My niece actually goes to Marymount High School. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so, so you went there and you went to the school. What was your major when you did that? English. So you got. I mean, I, I sort of had aspirations to be an actress. I thought, oh, yeah, I want to be an actress. But I think the main thing was to get out of Baton Rouge. I worked at Chili's restaurant. I made $500. I knew one person in the city. 
And I just, I mean, even now when I go back, I'm astounded that I did it at 18, 19 years old. Um, my parents were completely against it. Um, they, there was no support at all for this endeavor. Um, and yeah, it was crazy. And I was a nanny. Did you, I, did you enjoy being a nanny? I did. I loved, I did enjoy, I have a, like, it's a crazy story, but I live with this crazy family and it was really <laughs> weird. Like now that I'm a mom, I would never have an 18 year old living in my house taking care of my kids. But um, yeah, I did. I loved it. It was two little kids. And How did you balance it? Because I mean, school, I mean, school takes up time. And if you're watching kids, that's like a full-time job. Yeah, it was a full-time job. I got up in the morning at seven and I got the kids ready for school. This was the other thing too. I didn't realize, I mean, I was so naive and so green. Obviously I had chutzpah because I got up there, but I was so green. I They hired me for, um, I got paid a hundred dollars a week. I worked seven days a week except i had wednesday mornings i could sleep in and they were paying me a hundred dollars a week <laughs> i was getting the kids up for for school getting them dressed ready to school i'd pick them up at three o'clock in the afternoon play with them all afternoon and then one day i had to make dinner by accident i wasn't supposed to be making dinner but i'm southern and i'm a pretty good cook and the husband was like went crazy over the food i made he said can you cook like every night and i said sure i'll cook every night i don't care i like to cook <laughs> so here i was a hundred dollars a week full-time job <laughs> and then cut to about nine months later I was sitting in the park with other nannies and they were talking about their jobs and I was talking about my job and they were making 360 a week and had weekends off and I thought holy <laughs> shit I'm getting ripped off and therein lie the beginning of my New York education yeah it's true they say it's like anything well you think about it, it's anywhere you know if, if it's a corporate job if you have someone who's going to do a bunch of stuff, you know people who want to do a good job. You can just tell. Right off the day, they have integrity. They go to a job. They're born with a work ethic. And I have them, my girlfriend, her job before she moved out here. She worked there for like seven years or six years, and they knew she was making sure everything got done in the office. Someone's screwing around. They're, going to, they're fine with that because they know Joanne will take care of it. And they take advantage of you, and they go, okay, we'll pay you this. And they know because you have that integrity that you want to get the job done. Yes. I mean, there's also, yes, I agree with you. But the other th truth matter is I wanted to be there. I wanted to make it work. I wanted to live in New York. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to study. I wanted to make a living. I like, you know, I'm, I'm, I was being taken advantage of, but I really, it didn't matter until it mattered until right. I realized, wait, there's other opportunities for me where I can make more money have you know and but until i actually learned that i was getting ripped off i was totally fine i was happy i had a free place to live that's, food in the refrigerator you know i was living on central park west are you kidding that's well yeah that's that you know, i that's, mean the, my room was like half the size of this radio studio it was you know <laughs> t, you know the maze quarters still i was 18 i didn't care i was right. completely happy and yeah so now how do you get start getting your acting uh career going so I was at the same time, I was also going to the Neighborhood Playhouse, which is in New York, uh, taking the summer course and living with the family. Um, and one day, believe it or not, I was, this is like kind of those, you know, the soda, the soda shop story. Um, I was sitting in the lobby waiting for the kids to get off the school bus. And there was a, a photographer, a major photographer. His name was Carmen Schiavone. He used to shoot a, a lot of cosmopolitan, uh, Cosmo um, covers. And he was unloading his photography equipment in the lobby, and they were going on a shoot. And I said, hey, um, I see you're a photographer. I'm just wondering, I need to get headshots. I want to be an actress. Can you can you take my headshot, or do you know anybody who can take my headshot? And he said, actress, why do you want to be an actress? And I said, well, that's what I came up here for. He said, well, you should model. 
And I said, no, I'm not a model. I'm not going to model. He said, no, come come by my studio and let me talk to you. And I know this sounds like come by my studio, no, like, know. you know, pretty young thing. Come by my studio. He was like this old gay guy. He was, it was clear he was not looking to pick me up. Um, and so uh, I thought, okay, what the hell? And uh, so I went by his studio the next week and uh, he said, let me take some pictures of you. And he took pictures of me and he sent me to Ford Modeling Agency, which at the time was the largest modeling right. agency in the world. And they signed me on the spot. <laughs> it was really weird. So see that, but that's that's great to know that the copy, the coffee shop thing, soda shop thing can happen because you know you think it's a it's such a myth, but there are times that people sit there. I heard Matt Dillon was like sitting on a bench somewhere cutting school, and they said, "Hey, kid, you should be in TV or movies." And his whole career took off from there. Yeah, I mean that didn't happen with my acting career. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it got me it got me uh out of being a nanny you know i started to make a little bit of money and and um i was you know doing jc penny catalogs and things like that and 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 putting myself through school still so it got me some more money and i was able to uh get my own place with you know six people down in the village and you know crowded into a little apartment and that was my start now you start off you get the modeling and you're sitting there still in the mind you want to act because that's that's what you're there for how do you transition into acting so i was taking a lot of classes doing you know um hb studios um neighborhood playhouse a lot of studio classes and uh and then i had and then the modeling kind of just fizzled out I, I really wasn't into it i wasn't tall enough i wasn't thin enough i really wasn't pretty enough um just to kind of like make it a and i knew it wasn't a career for me anyway my heart was just not in it and uh, so I, I had been in New York for, at this point, about four or five years, and I kept auditioning, and I could not get hired. I just couldn't break. I just couldn't make the break. And finally, I decided if I really wanted to stay in the business and do what I wanted to do, I needed to go back to school and really get some decent training. Um, because I would go to auditions, and I would be up for parts next to girls from Juilliard and Yale, and they would get hired, and I wouldn't. Um, because they had training, they had done, you know, eight shows a week in school and I'd never done anything really except the whiz in the eighth grade right. <laughs> you know, or whatever I did in high school. So, uh, so I, I went back to school and that's another long story, but basically I, I, I applied and got into North Carolina School of the Arts. How did you ch choose that school? Did you apply to a lot of schools or did you just sit there and focus on that one? No, I, um, well, that story is I had been up for a number of times for a theater director whose name is Gerald Friedman. And at the time, he was running the Great Lakes Theater Festival, which is out of Cleveland, Ohio, and it's a wonderful regional theater. And I kept getting callback after callback, and but he would never hire me. And finally, my manager, who has since passed away, but uh, she was a wonderful manager of mine at the time, and she got on the phone with Gerald one day, and she said, you know, Gerald, you keep bringing Catherine in, but you never hire her. What? Why not, or what can she do differently? And he said, she just doesn't have the technique and the training that I, I need to know that someone can do eight shows a week uh, and, you know, has the, the chops. And he said, but I tell you what, I've just been hired as the dean of North Carolina School of the Arts, and I think I can get her in and based on her life experience, maybe get her put in. It was a four-year program. So because of Gerald Friedman, he brought me in as a, as a junior. Okay. I got a four-year degree, a bachelor degree in two years. That's pretty good. From School of the Arts, and that's all because of Gerald Friedman. You think about it. You you had, you know, the New York story. You hooked up with a nice place in Central Park. This, so you're, you're hooking up a lot. You're getting some good breaks when you're going, you're, you're trying have, to get this done. Listen, the kindness of strangers, man. I mean, they're not kidding when they say that. I, I think that, um, and again, 
luck, 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 luck meets work, work, work. You know, what is the, the what's the Chinese thing where sweat meets, you know, luck? Is that, what's a lucky thing? You know, I, where I, I, I don't working know. your ass off meets the opportunity and that's luck. Right. Well, that, that, that is true though. People, and I get that from a lot of actors who have been on there. When they've gotten on here, they've gotten a chance. It's not like they just sat there and were discovered overnight. They studied and they were ready and it was a matter of, okay, you're lucky enough to get a chance. Now you can suck and never be heard again or you can sit there and capitalize and just do what you're meant to do right and it goes from there and i think making the choice to go back to school you know and i'd never gotten my degree i had done the marymount manhattan i'd done a year at lsu before i moved up to new york so i had these spotty little credits and that kind of stuff floating around and it was a very difficult decision for me because i'd been living in manhattan which is a hard city to live in you know i'd really gotten some you know tough tough skin living in the city and to go back to Winston-Salem, North Carolina and to be with kids straight out of high school to go back to college. I was 25, um, 24, 25 at the time. And uh, it wasn't an easy decision, but it was the best decision I ever made because I graduated in May of 1993. I got a Kmart commercial in June of 93. My last non-acting job in my life was... uh, in the winter of 93 and it and it was so it was literally turned out to be the best decision i ever made because i started making my living as an actor within six months of graduating from school of the arts now you get out you start making your like uh living as an actor and now you end up getting cast in nobody's fool that's right that year i got cast in nobody's fool now what's it like for you know someone to you know you're new i mean you've had life experiences but then all of a sudden, you know, you're in a movie with Paul Newman. I mean, as as someone young, it must just be like, holy, and someone was act like, holy crap, I'm with like this legend. It was huge. And to make matters worse, I got cast in a play in Boston at the Huntington Theater at the exact same time. So I was flying back and forth and taking the train back and forth between New York and Boston um, and also uh, Fishkill, New York, is which we, where we were shooting Nobody's Fool. Uh, and I was doubled up on this theater job. I got my equity card doing this theater job, and then I was doing my first major movie at the exact same time. And quite honestly, I don't think I handled it very well. In what way? Um, it was the pressure was so huge on me, and I, I had no examples or role models for how to cope with the pressure and the stress. Um, and uh, it was hard. It was really hard. Well, yeah, and especially as, as I said, you know, you're you're new to this profession, somewhat, and you have a movie and you have a play, which most people would like to have one or the other. Hey, I would kill for that problem today. <laughs> like, if anybody wants to hire me for two jobs at the same time, now bring it on. But at the time, I was green. I was just so green. I was just a really, and you know, I was insecure and I was green and I was ill-equipped and um, lucky as all get out, you know, so. So you're doing both and now once the movie wraps and the play wraps, where do you go from there? Because you've had a taste of two great things. I mean, you've had a movie, which was a major movie because you moved to start and the theater, you're in a great city doing theater. Now you just must sit there and go, where do I go from here? Because it's a lot of stuff and I know you were older when you went back to school but you're still a young age yeah have I was 27 all this, yeah have all this stuff dropped on you i mean it that's right so what do you do then and how do you sit there and focus and say what am i going to do am i going to do because you're going to do movies are you going to do theater because you know it's a pain in the ass to do both 
So where do you sit there and where do you start generating towards? Well, I, I, when I graduated from School of the Arts in 93 and around that time that I booked Nobody's Fool, um, I was doing the commercial world in, in New York was huge. And so I started booking a lot of national commercials. And I mean, I did everything, Wist Detergent, TGI Fridays, Charles Schwab, like literally like just book na- all these national commercials. So I, I, uh, I was able to make a pretty decent living. Right. You know, back in the day, you could really make a good living. You got one national commercial. And it was a great training ground, too. They kind of like, you know how you have actors talk about doing soap operas. I did a couple soap operas. Not long-term contracts, but, you know, like small recurring roles and stuff like that. And so I was just kind of just getting my chops, you know. Um, and I, I uh, then I started going out, coming out here to L.A. for pilot season. Okay, so had you been to L.A. before, or was this the first time, or was it just, did your agents probably said, you know what, you've been doing this, you've been doing that, let's, let's get you out there. I had been to L.A. one time before, before I went back to School of the Arts. I chose, I came out here, and I had one, one um, pilot season experience, which went really, really well, although I didn't book anything, but I was like really close on jobs, and the num- you know, it's all a numbers game at that point when you're a kid. I mean, I was having like 17 auditions a week. I'd be lucky to have 17 a year, you know, at this point, but, but 17 auditions a week and I was going out and, and really, really close and testing and network deals and that kind of stuff. And so it, the, the, the indication was I, I definitely had potential and I definitely had uh, a chance, a shot at it, but then I chose to go back to school. Um, and so after I'd been in New York for, for about a year or so, after I graduated, I started coming out, excuse me, started coming out more for pilot season and uh, and then just getting a lot of work here, a lot of, getting a lot of guest stars, um, and just booking more television. And then I would come out and stay longer, and go back to New York and come out and stay longer. And I just booked and booked and booked. And then finally, I got um, I booked um, The Majestic, right? And um, with Frank Darabont, and I was literally on set. Um, and I got an audition to go over to Deb Aquila's office across the lot, and uh, put my hair in a ponytail and wiped off the red lipstick from the fifties and auditioned for Sean Ryan and Deb Aquila for The Shield and went to network and got that my first television series. Now that must just be, you know, once again, you're you're getting guest spots and you get the majestic and I mean it's a great it's a great cast. I it was Brian was Brian Howe in that? That's how I met Brian Howe. Oh, yeah, because I think he said someone saw him, I think Spielberg was connected to the Majestic, no? No, Spielberg was not but, involved well, in no, Dorm, well, one of them saw him in something else and they said he should be in this and that's how he got on it that must be great though because now you're, you're you're doing tv but you're also doing motion pictures now what was your even when you were doing the guest spots it's a week a movie theory what was your, movies longer what was your what were you getting used to were you getting used to the tv or were you sitting there going man just doing this movie's great or what did you prefer to well, do in the movie was great i mean i think that you know you're asking me the difference between film and television i think that right as my career was taking off there started to be not that kind of difference. You know, you had crossover. You know, back in the day, you wouldn't have, my first role was with Paul Newman. Paul Newman Paul Newman started in television. He did Playhouse 91. Or Playhouse, 90, Playhouse 91. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there was a stigma to do in television. But right around the time, you know, the mid-90s, when my career was really taking off, um, television and film, there was no stigma. There was no... Um, like, oh, are you going to choose between television and film? You know, most people are just lucky to get a job. You know, this idea that you can choose between the two, I think, is bullshit. Right. You know, yes, can Brad Pitt choose between the two? Sure. But, I mean, you know, even Glenn Close, 
you know, did, did she choose between the two? She went where the writing was. Right, and she did uh, damages. Which was... She did the shield first. Okay, yeah, you're right. That was her first television foray. But um, so yeah, I was happy to be working. What can I say? I was thrilled to be working. I did, I, you know, being on location in a Frank Darabont movie where craft services is, you know, cappuccinos right. and you know anything you want at any given hour, and you're, you're hanging out with Jim Carrey and Brian Howe and uh, you know, Martin Landau. And, right. It's it's quite the quite the experience. That was nice. Yeah. Now, when you go to the audition for the Shield, first of all. FX is very, very new. FX, you know, no one knows what to expect because, as I said, it's a very new thing, and you're going as a police officer. Mm-hmm. Now, when you walk in there, what did you expect? Did you expect that this show would just blow up? I mean, when you when you go through the audition... No, not even a clue. As a matter of fact, my agents told me to turn it down. Why? Because nobody knew what FX was. I think they had... I don't even know what John Silberg said. It was some, you know, girls in bikinis on trampolines or something. I mean, that was The Man it. Show, I think was on it. Yeah, The Man Show. Yeah, was that girls in bikinis yeah. on trampolines? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and guys well, drinking beer. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so, it was exactly Adam, Adam Kroll and Jimmy Kimmel hosted it. Yeah, that's my that was my association, girls in bikinis on trampolines. Um, nobody knew what it was. The money was for shit. Um, and, um, yeah, there was no reason to take the job, really. I mean... In the sense that, you know, I was doing this movie, I was up for a lot of pilots, I was, you know, testing for a lot of shows and stuff. But again, with the crossover between film and television, I mean, you go where the writing is. I know it's the most cliche thing in the world to hear, but any actor worth or interested in their craft or telling stories wants to go where the writing is and the good stories. So I just wanted a good job. I wanted to be a part of an interesting story. What caught you about the writing when you went in there? Was there something that you said, wow, this is really good stuff? Because you've been in a lot of shows. It's not like you're someone who's looking at a script for the first time. You've been in movies. You've been in, you know, and you've been in guests at different no, shows. No, but I was still up and coming. I mean, I had not gotten a television series. I had not been a series regular. I had certainly done a, a lot of jobs, but nobody, Michael was the only person on The Shield when all of us were cast, the sort of core of eight of us, original eight. None of us had really made our mark as actors that show put us all on the map except you know michael had done the commish right but then he did daddy-o it's funny it's it's there's a heroes and icon channel and i see the commish on it and then there's an old seinfeld where michael's on it and he and it's just so different the transformation because you go you go wow vic mack well he's got brilliant range i mean he has enormous range as an actor I mean, this is, I always say, this is the guy who played Curly in The Three Stooges and also Vic Mackey. He has enormous range. Um, So, also, I think the idea, too, that they were interested in me as a female cop because, you know, again, just like the modeling stuff, I've never been, like, the skinny girl or the blonde girl or the, you know, whatever. I've always been pretty substantial and kind of a, um, I don't want to say, like, average girl, but in the sense I'm, like, the girl next, you know... yeah, you're you're someone that you know. It's you're someone the girl next door. And, realistic you know, person, right? Which sounds so ridiculous. I can't wait. We're all realistic, but I was never cast as you know um, the hot you know Heather Locklear as the cop. That was not going to be my path. And so, if which, you're seeing me for a cop, they really kind of wanted real people, you know. And so that was exciting. That it was it was going to be a show that represented and looked at this world from a more realistic viewpoint and so i felt you know pretty jazzed about that and like i had a shot so when you go into the audition 
how do you think you did when you when you walked out? Did you feel good about it? Did you say, you know, and what was the whole process then of you getting the job? Well, it's weird that you ask that because I felt really connected to the material and, and I felt good about it. And then, you know, cut to 10 years later and they set, they put out the DVDs from The Shield and they have our friggin' auditions on there. And I thought, <laughs> Jesus Christ, how did I even get the job? I sucked. That was humiliating. That was horrible. But thank God, Sean Ryan and Clark Johnson and um, Peter Ligori at the time was, uh, you know, FX and, and uh, they saw something in me. You know, another little side story that was funny about that was I had never met Peter Ligori, but he, uh, I was engaged to my husband at the time and Peter and my husband had gone to undergrad together. Okay. And Peter had tried to set my husband, Pete, they're both named Peter, but Peter Ligori had tried to set up my husband, Peter, with the friend of his. And so evidently when my picture was going around the table, Peter Ligori said to this woman, this is the girl who took the guy that I was going to set you up with or something. I don't know. <laughs> There's some weird story that Ligori liked to tell. But I'd never met Ligori. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. Um, it just happened to be that, you know, the show that he was doing uh, was The Shield. But. So you you go for one audition. Now, did they give you a callback or what's the whole process of you getting the job? Did I have a callback? I think I went straight. I might have had a callback. I don't remember. Sean Ryan said that I was the first person that they cast. It took a while for them to get Chicky. I'm sure you've heard those stories about finding Michael. And, no, I, I just... Oh, those are interesting, fun stories. Um, Michael's wife and Kathy, Sean's wife, were in like Jimboree together or something, and there's a whole connection with that. Because um, I think they were, you know, it was a pretty big role, and so they were going to name actors, and uh, Michael Chiklis really fought for that role, um, rightly so, and, you know, knocked it out of the park. Um I think, and I, Sean might say I was wrong, but I think I was the first person they actually literally cast. So what was it like going to, because you have to go to network, right? I mean, what Yeah, was you it? go to network. So I don't remember if I had a callback, but then you go to network and it's terrifying because what happens is they, they work out your contract before you even get the job. So it's not like you get the job and then they say, oh, okay, so how much money do you want? They basically work out your whole deal right. before you've even gotten <laughs> it. So, you know, money is on the line before you even cross the threshold. It's terrifying. It's horrible. It's nerve-wracking. It's the most artificial acting situation you'll ever be in. And you just have to hope that, you know, you're relaxed and grounded and you do what you're, you know, they, my acting teacher should say, you know, in the Super Bowl, you, you know, you play the game that got you there. So. So when do you find out you get it? And are you just ecstatic because you're like, I'm going to be part of the series? Well, it was just a pilot at the time. You okay. don't know what's going. I was more ecstatic about it going to series. I think. I think I like you know scream bloody murder because that's a big deal. A pilot is you know it's 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 a little chunk of change and it's a nice job and you hope it goes, but there's no guarantee. Um. So yeah, I was very excited that you know I, I got my first series regular and um, and Sean had a get together at his house and um. I immediately liked, you know, immediately liked the, my fellow players, and um, Chicky and I, you know, hit it off immediately, and um, yeah, we went to work. And so it gets picked up, and now how, when it finally gets picked up, it's for how many episodes? So we got picked up, and I remember that phone call because I was in my dining room, and the phone rang, and I was engaged, and um, Scott Brazil 
and Sean Ryan were on a conference, called me up at the same, you know, they were on a conference call or whatever. And they said, Hey, we've got some good news. We got picked up. And I was like, Oh my God. Yay. And I said, okay, wait, hold on one second. I'm getting married on March 23rd. Can I have the week off? <laughs> so before I'd even like gone to my first day of work, I was asking for all, time off. I'm sure that set a bad precedent, but that's what happened. So you get it, you start shooting, you got to be excited. It's picked up. This is, you know, what you what every actor really would like to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, and so, they're, so you start shooting it, and now do they, how many episodes did they order? A full season, or did they just order 12? or what? Because I know I seasons had, have changed now. Yeah, so. I think this was one of the first shows that was doing 13. I think our first season was 13, so the pilot plus 12. Now, what's it like when you get on set and you're playing a cop because i mean that it's stuff horrible. is heavy it's that stuff horrible. is heavy and, and when to... i watch the pilot too it's like watching my audition scene I, it's such a joke i mean michael jace and i were shooting one of our first scenes if you remember the pilot it's a scene where we come up with this, this kid and he's got this really fancy car he's been stealing tires or slashing tires and um i think michael has a line michael jace has a line like you know you've got a $60,000 car in front of a $300 a month apartment or something like that. It's a funny line about that. But Michael and I had to sort of swagger up to this, you know, kind of get out of the cop car and look real tough and swagger up. And Clark Johnson just, you know, cut, you know, what the hell are you two doing? Why are you walking like that? Walk like you own the street. Walk like you know some shit, you know. And I look back at the pilot and I see myself trying to like <laughs> look like I know some shit. And I didn't know. The Sam Brown weighs about 20 pounds. That's the belt with the nightstick and the gun and the fake bullets and stuff. And, you know, you feel like you're a linebacker and you've got these heavy work boots on. It's, you know, and I was thinking I was going to be like, you know, Pepper from, right. you know, Angie Dickinson. <laughs> like, I want to be sexy. And it's like, no, you, you know, you're like a dude walking to clomping down the street. So, so you get through the, you get through the first, you season. get through the scene and it's not very good. And thank God there's editing and you know, you just kind of do it. You just sort of, I don't know. We did it. So now let's see, you get done the first season. When do you find out you're going to the second season? And that must've been a great feeling. Cause you're like, it, was a great it feeling. must be scary. Cause once again, FX isn't that known. And, and, not as many people had cable back then, and there wasn't like now you can find any TV show on the computer. No, but I will say this to John Solberg, who was the head of publicity at FX, and Michael Chiklis, those guys, the two of them worked their asses off to put that show out there. Um, and with the FX, FX's support, FX had a master publicity and marketing team. Our, our promos were beautiful, the music, da, 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 like all that kind of stuff was really tough. Um, they did a, just a masterful job of getting it out there, and and Solberg and and Michael Chiklis, you know, hit the ground running, and really um, made people aware of the show. And so I think we knew pretty fairly soon that we got picked up for a second season. I mean, it wasn't like one of these situations where we wrapped for the season and then had to wait six months or three, whatever. We knew we were going back. If I, as I recall, it didn't feel like forever now you're starting you know the, the seasons are going on yeah and people are really loving the show yeah and it's a very great crowd that watch i watched it all the time i remember i, I would be at happy hour and i would be sitting there because i could watch it on the east coast time because my old cable had fx east coast i think it was at on at 10 i believe and so i could watch it at seven right and i would sit there and i go my buddies would be like hey you want another beer i'm like no i gotta go the shield's on so i would, I would walk home 
because I live in Burbank, and I and I was I love the show, and it, like the music, the just it got you. It was very gritty, and it just it, you were like pumped to see it because it got you in the mood. Yeah. But now for you, now you're in this in this movie. I mean, TV show. Now are people starting to recognize you because you know you've acted a lot and you've been in commercials. So whenever you've been in commercials, people go, they know your face. Yeah, but, they don't know why they know me, right. but um, oh yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it changed. I mean, I remember I was in London at Heathrow Airport. And this guy came up to me and he just was like, can I kiss you? <laughs> what? Yeah, it definitely changed things. Um, you know, it was a it was a hit. And then we won the Golden Globe. Um, you know, but it was still cable. I mean, it wasn't, a, you know, a network TV show. So it wasn't like I was getting paparazzi and mobbed in the street. Which is good. Cause which you don't I want... pref- Yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's still there's a certain level of anonymity. But um, no, it definitely, it changed everything for me. I mean, it changed my career. It gave me every opportunity I've had since then would not have happened had it not been for that show. It also gave me confidence and it gave me craft and I learned, it made me a seasoned actor. You know, I did that, we were seven seasons in. Now, did female police officers get in touch with you and did they like your portrayal or did cops get in touch with you with you and like your portrayals? Um. Nobody would get in touch with me. I mean, I, I actually have in my wallet, somebody sent me, and I've, I haven't been stopped since, but somebody sent me this sort of um, a Sergeant's Benevolent Society I've, card. Have you seen these things? I've seen, I've seen them on the back of like, I know guys I grew up with back east or cops, and they have, they give people they know like on the back of the car, you know, on, it's a decal. And it's just yeah, so, so I have this card that I've kept in my wallet now for, you know, 10 years. <laughs> this guy from New York, it was a New York cop. He sent it to me. One time my husband got stopped and uh, I said to the cop, I said, if I would have pulled this out, if it would have been me, would you have taken it? He said, yeah, probably so. <laughs> um, so I think they work. I haven't been stopped. Um, I'm, I'm a granny driver. But um, yeah, no, everything, my, my, my entire career changed because of that show. And, and you know, I'm, I have an enormous amount of gratitude for everybody involved in it. Now, yeah. what's it like going back to a hit show? And you know the writing's phenomenal. It must be so exciting because it's one of those shows that it kept the momentum. I mean, it's not like some shows you sit there and you watch a few, like three seasons, and the fourth season you go, eh, I'm just not into it. That show constantly Oh, built. yeah, we were it always built, on the edge of our seat. What was that like you for to being an actor? And you must have been very excited because you probably never knew which way your character's going to go. And, and that must just be amazing to, with... Oh, no, it was terrifying. I mean, and they would, you know, those writers would put us through some shit. Literally, I mean, they had me walking through shit one time. I remember I had just had my son and I hadn't read the script. And the um, and I was completely, you know, out of my mind having a baby and work, you know, just didn't, he was four weeks old. And the costumer called me up or the makeup artist said, are you allergic to nuts? And I said, no, why? And she said, oh, well, we just need to make sure because with the Snickers and stuff, you know, and I was like, Snickers? <laughs> what you did with Snickers? She said, "Oh well, for the you know the shit we have to rub all over your costume." And I said, "What?" <laughs> and it was this episode I hadn't even read, like you know where they had us wading through. Ugh, it was disgusting, you know. The, I mean, so they literally like they just put us a hell and back. And I also think that they were very in tune to. There's a great little mini documentary kind of thing on the. I think it was the first DVD. It's called The Breaking of Episode 13. And in it, you see them, Sean, with the writers breaking down the episode and coming up with stories. And And I think that they were really in tuned into the tensions of the day 
and the sort of qualities that we all had as actors. And they really tried to sort of tap into that. You know, I think they did a really good job of getting to know us as people and as actors and our strengths and weaknesses. And, um, and I think that, you know, Sean was pretty specific about keeping us, you know, not on the know so that the, he could keep the tension high. Um, it was an interesting way of doing it. It was definitely a writer-run show and not an actor-run show, which is rare in television. You have these sort of prima donna actors who want to see the script and make changes, right. and that did not happen on The Shield. You did not change anything. That's good. That's good. It, it gives them more of the vision, and I think it, in the long run for an actor, it must be great because you know you're going to have the best. In, when you put your ego aside, you're going to sit there and go, I'm going to have the best character because that's why they write, and that's why I act. And I'm not a writer. This is what they do. That's right. But that's not the norm for a lot of television shows. And so it's a hard muscle because you get used to doing one show and it's like, I got to make this work. I got to make this real. People don't talk like this. And so you sort of get in the habit of trying to make it your own. And then, you know, you go to the shield and they're like, no, 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 don't say that. Say what's on the page. You know, so it's a muscle. You have to really kind of adapt to like making sure you can, you know, uh, treat the word as as what it is so when it's winding down and you know it's going to be done what are your what are your thoughts because it's like you know you've spent i mean it's like anything you spend seven years with someone i mean with a whole crew and not only the actors but the crew and and differences the crew everyone's everyone you know when it's a hit they're happy because they know you know they're coming back the next year and it's it's like you know nothing worse than you know there's a set where it's like it's teetering and they're not sure and everyone's uptight and the producers are going to have to do better have to do better what was it like when you knew it was going to end and you sat there and went you know this is i got now this has been a great experience but now i gotta get back to the grind yeah getting back to the grind is no fun i mean i think that in the moment at the time it felt like you know sean wanted to leave on a high note we were leaving at a really great place. We had not worn out our welcome. So there was the excitement of the possibility of that, like what's going to be next. Um, and I immediately booked a pilot, you know, right after that, which we thought got picked up. They held me for 10 months and it never got picked up. So I didn't work for, I wasn't on TV for a year because I had this contract they were holding me. And then after that, it was like getting a job like the shield was virtually, I mean, they just don't come around like that. And you realize, wow, I wish that had never ended. Right. You know, um, but I got to tell you, there were 160 of us in the casting crew. And I think maybe five or six of us major players, I say us, five or six, you know, the accountant, a camera guy, whatever. Six people left over the course of seven years. The whole crew and the whole cast stayed together. Even Kenny, who they had to kill off because of storylines, you know, Lemonhead was always around like, you know, Kenny's like, near and dear to all of us you know even though he had a killing but we were so tight um you know friends of births and weddings and deaths and um it was a really tight group and it must be uh just it must be amazing because as you said you know checklist had to fight for that part and all you guys weren't known all of a sudden now you're on a hit and you're right all your lives change i mean you go from just you know acting you know on a show going out for the auditions to all of a sudden you're going holy crap 
you know, we have a job for this long. Yeah, but we were friends. I mean, just two days ago, I sent Walton Goggins a little email. He, I saw an interview he'd done on Conan, and I wrote him, I was like, you are hot snot, you know. And he wrote back, and he said, oh, I wish we could have a cup of coffee. And I saw that email, and I thought, yeah, I wish we could just have a cup of coffee. You know, we were friends and pals and really enjoyed each other, all of us. And now our lives are just spread out and diverse, and, you know, we've gone on to different stuff, and... and uh it's, it's a drag. You can't just see your buddies and have a cup of coffee or, you know. It is. I mean, it's just, it's a different thing. I mean, but but at least you're still in touch. At least you guys do yeah. get in touch. Yeah. So now you're leaving the show and you've been playing a cop, a female cop for those years. Now, what does your agent or your manager or you sit there and go, I, you know what? I did my cop. Do I, I mean, how do you sit there and change because you had a very strong character and you were a good cop and you played the role great, but you got to sit there as an actor and go, you know what? Okay, yeah, been there, done that. So where do you sit there? And go to? Would you have to reinvent yourself, or which? What do you do and think? What kind of roles do I want to get? Well, I, you know, I got a lot of, I got really bummed out because I got a lot of dominatrix scripts. <laughs> and I was like, why am I getting all these dominatrix scripts? Danny was, I mean. I don't know. It was kind of a drag. I ended up playing the past couple of years since the show ended. I sort of transitioned from like cop to lawyer to senator, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, I would love to. I don't know if it would be reinvent myself, but I'd love to have the opportunity to show a different side and a range of myself. But, uh, you know, it's a very specific medium. Um, and I, I, I've learned now that I've been around for oh these many years that, that there just are types in life, you know. And um, you you put a jacket on me and you kind of want to vote for me. You know, I just sort of have that physicality or whatever. So I've tended to play uh, more in that wheelhouse. Even though I would love, to, I'm wacky shit. I'd love to play that, but nobody's hiring me for the for whack, whack jobs. Well, but you can be a wacky dominatrix. There <laughs> you go. True. Then I that's the role. Yeah, you so now you, you end up, you go, you go to the mentalist for a while. Yes, yes. And now that must, that was, you know, that's that was a fun show. I mean, that was one of those shows that was, there's certain shows you watch that are cop shows, like The Shield, very intense. Yeah. And The Mentalist, yeah, people die. But yeah. you don't sit there and go, oh, it's it's more lighthearted. And then you play an FBI agent. That must have been great because sort of you're going from a cop to an FBI agent. That must have been good to do a different role like that and be on, I mean, I know you, you guest starred a bunch of episodes, but it's also seemed like a crew that was... They were a very tight cast. Well, I was going to say it wasn't. I had sort of floated around and did some, you know, recurrings and a couple of pilots and stuff like that. And then I, they brought me on the mentalist for I don't know what I do six or eight episodes. But, but uh, that's a, that it, that was the first time I had felt at home in a in a while since the Shield. That was a great crew. Chris Long and Bruno Heller are just showrunners and executive producers who I loved working with and working for. Um, so yeah, that was the first job after the Shield ended that I. Um, was really kicking around and thinking, oh, this could be home again. Now, did people, when you would go do certain guest roles, would you run into people who were Shield fans? And was that, I mean, because people love the Shield and the industry, I'm sure, loved it. It was that sort of odd because they sit there and they go, you know, you know, inside they're going, oh man, we loved her in the Shield, and you're and you just want to act as a as a peer. But if someone, I mean, that you know, as when you were younger as an actor, you may have been intimidated when let's say you worked with Paul Newman or, or any actor that you knew of did you ever think that you were possibly the intimidating person well it's interesting you should say that because I have noticed my past you know six or seven jobs on the set that there is kind of that awareness like oh 
oh, I'm the old timer now. You know, not pejoratively like old timer, but just like I've been doing this for 30 years, you know, and there's kids who are having their first and second and third jobs, you know, who are starring in some show and I'm just the guest, you know what I mean? But I'm like the old timer visiting the guest or whatever. It's a trip. It's a real trip. And they do look up to me in a way that feels kind of odd because I feel like I'm just a player in the sandbox, you know. You know, it's weird. It sort of goes back to your college days because when you went back to the arts, School of the school, arts yeah. you were older then yeah. going in with the kids. So now it's sort of, it's just funny how people's, the, there's a cycle. Now it's yeah. the same thing. You're going in where, you know, yeah. back when you were in college, it's just, when we had older people in our class, we'd be like, oh, they're going to they're gonna bust the curve. Yeah. You know, like we're out partying and they're out studying. Yeah, they, yeah, they wanna, yeah. they, they're here to better themselves. We're here just to get, get wasted laid and, and get laid. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, no, but it's nice because I can tell you now, I, I can't, I, I don't think there's been one set. I mean, I've been on a set in South Africa. I've been on a set, you know, in Ottawa, Canada. I don't think I've been on a set in the past 15 years that there's not at least one person I know, now, even like a grip, you know, there'll be one person that I've worked with. So it's a big world, but it's a small community. Um, and that's always really gratifying that there'll be some job. I, one of my very first movies, I just did a, uh, a thing on, uh, astronaut wives club. And the guy that directed me was the first AD in the very first movie I ever did. It was this super low girl's guide to sex. I mean, it didn't even, you know, right. And he said, you're not going to remember me, but I was the AD on the it's yeah, amazing. 30 years ago. I know. It's just amazing how people, everyone, you know, I think it's also, it's from attrition. Yeah. Because so many, you know, you see so many people that come into this town. And That's I, you right. know, I remember when I used to manage restaurants, I did marketing for restaurants in LA and you would have so many waiters were actors and actresses. Right. And then after like six months of the job, they're packing up and going back to North Carolina or going back to whatever. And it's an attrition factor because so many people who have stayed and you've had a career, as you said, your last non-acting job was 30 years ago so you've met people who are now in the same boat with you who their last non-acting well, job listen, I mean, let me tell you something if there's any young actors out there listening to this i i have a very distinct memory i was painting my apartment i was in new york city and i'd had rejection after rejection after rejection and i was probably 28 29 at the time and i'd been kicking around for a couple of years but i'd gone back to school and i was painting in my painting the walls of my apartment and i was really down and out and you know how, what's that movie with wax on, wax off? Karate Kid. Yeah, you know in the Karate Kid, like something just comes to you, you just do the sort of something over and over again. I was painting this wall and I had this realization, while I was painting, I remember thinking, if I just stick around long enough, I'm going to be the last fucking one standing right. and they're going to have to hire me. <laughs> Seriously, because this is so hard. If you're saying you have to drop out, it's crazy making. And I just thought, if I can just stand up and keep going and keep standing i will be the last one standing there's be no one else around they'll have to hire me and sure enough i think that's why i got some jobs <laughs> like there's nobody else let's hire Catherine. but i mean yeah you just the attrition rate people just drop out you have kids you have families it's tough and uh i just thought stick with it you know it's just too much fun now two years ago or a year ago you were on the show gang related yeah. Which Skeeter Rose. Yeah. Scott I love that show. I was pissed when it got canceled. Yeah, we and were too. I, and I always sit there and say, I think there should be the network should have to hire a PR person to sit there when they cancel a show 
to send a press release out to everybody that watched it to tell us what the hell happened because you sit there and it's a cliffhanger and then they cancel it and you never know and nothing's resolved and i think as a viewer i think it's such bullshit that if you're going to cancel it at least find out where it was going to go and tell people because i sat there and when i found out and it's the other thing i always look on you know i'm always looking for guests and stuff like that and i see it's 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 canceled and me and my girlfriend watch it all the time and we really enjoyed it and it was building and and you were an, an untrusting person and you know i was like oh, i don't like her because because it's like you seem you seemed legit at first but then you were just you were a con you were you were you were crooked and i hate yeah. crooked lawyers how did i mean when that role came up that wasn't good too because you have a lot of dimension in it well that role was actually written for a man okay and I think that the network came down, they had two, they needed to kind of like, you know, diversify a little bit and get some more women on the show because they just had the two younger women, you know, um, my brain is dead. I can't remember their characters' names, but, but, uh, so when I went into audition for that, it was a man. He was the DA. Was that the DA on that? Yeah. This you were, is, yeah, it was a DA. Yeah. I forget that. Um, DA Ellis. Yes. Thank you. DA Ellis. Um, and so it was it, all those, all the scripts were DA Ellis. He does this, he does that. And I think they just needed, you know, a, um, what's the phrase? Ball buster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call Catherine. No. Um, so yeah, but Scott Rosenbaum wrote that he was one of the writers on the shield. Okay. And so, um, yeah, but I had to audition for that. I had to do the, you know, it wasn't like a easy get. So when you got the part, though, and you said it was a male part, but then there's a romantic interest. I mean, did they have to sit there and bring that you in? You mean at the very end with, yeah. with Cliff? Um, um, I didn't know. Again, I think Skeet, Skeeter, Scott uh, Rosenbaum comes from the S.H.I.E.L.D. world where he doesn't let the actors in on a lot of information. And so when I saw that script and I had the line... Um, you know, you and I were friends or there was some allusion to maybe we had this relationship. The first time I knew about that was when I got that script. Okay. I was never given any information about that. So it, it got good ratings. Yeah. And so what's, I mean, was there a reason why it got canceled or I mean, and, or do they ever tell the actor, you know, well, this we is are why it always canceled. the last to know. Okay. So now how, what is it like now? Because, you know, with social media, everything blows up right away. I mean, for you to be the last to know still much is, must sort of suck because it's probably on a computer, on the Hollywood Reporter, and probably someone tells you, go, hey, by the way, your show got canceled. Yeah, I mean, it's we're probably like the second to last to know. Okay. I mean, I won't find out before the Hollywood Reporter usually, but uh, probably, you know, the day before. Yeah. It, it's a drag. It's hard to get work, you know. It's And, and good jobs, like Gang Related was a great job. And great great crew and great cast i just work with cliff again um i'm not I, when is this gonna air tomorrow oh and thursday i signed an nda i can't tell you what i, it's what all right. I did we won't we won't we won't um, ask but but great casting and then, then it's done it's over with and you're like oh shit i gotta get out and find another good group of people to work with it must be frustrating because i always think it must be really frustrating when you like the people you know the writing's good it's one of those things where you must go, well, what, what else am I, what can I do? This was a good show. It got good ratings. It's like anything. It's like, and now they you know don't, what? they don't want it. And it must just sit there as an actor. And I, I'm sure as the creator of the show, it must really suck. Cause you're like, what else? You know, I gave good ratings, good script, 
good cast. The yeah. acting was superb. It must just be really frustrating. That must be the really frustrating part of the business. It is very frustrating because especially when you think about the creators, you know, when you when the when somebody like, you know, Sean or Scott or, or whomever, you know, Bruno Heller writes a script, they get they get copious network notes. So it's not like they've just put they've just put out their own creative endeavor. They've put this creative endeavor out and then they've had to squeeze this square peg into a round hole to fit whatever the network notes were to deliver what they want in order for the network to put it on the air. So it's the the amount of work that goes beyond be, you know behind getting one episode done is huge. It's it's huge. I've I've just started directing and I've been following a lot, you know, basically seeing how the sausage is made on episodic television. And I mean, as actors, we know so little about what really goes on behind the scenes to really get a show, you know, off uh, off its feet. And the amount of work is just thousands of hours of blood, sweat, and tears. And then to have it just like your feet cut off beneath right. you is just brutal. We have a few minutes left. Yeah. Now, the directing, what made you want to get into the directing? Well, the roles were starting to shrink up a little bit. It got to be a drag, and I love the business. I love storytelling. I never was one of these actor, wannabe director types, and uh, but I applied to the AFI Directing Workshop for Women, and it's a very prestigious. They only let in eight women a year, and I got in, and I had a blast, and I loved it. And I've done so much television. At this point, I've done like over 300 hours of television, uh, more than most directors I've worked with, and I just wanted to just stay in the game and stay in the mix, and I love it. And I love working with actors, and I love crews. And now, would you ever want to direct yourself? Because I always think that would be hard. I I don't know how people do it. I, I have no desire to do it, but I guess if the right opportunity came along, I would do it. But I'm more interested in working with. I just love storytelling, so I, I love working with actors and to try to get you know the right you know um, mood for the scene and the emotions for the scene. Or I love working with writers or even costume designers and set designers to find like you know, the right weird prop that should be there. It's it's fun. And now any other big, any acting gigs coming up besides the one you can't talk about? The one I can't talk about will air in April. I think I can say it. No, I don't. I don't yeah, better not say no. it. And then I'm on a television show called Outcast, um, which is Robert Kirkman's second series after Walking Dead. Uh, it'll be on um, Cinemax this summer. Okay, good. I have Cinemax. Actually, when I when I re-upped my cable, I said, I need a cheaper price because you guys are screwing me. And they said, they brought my price down and they threw in Cinemax. So now I can, I can watch yeah, it. Yeah, it's called Outcast. It's a good show. Okay, it's good. It's, it's sort of, uh, it's like uh, Exorcist kind of stuff. It's I more like, like that demons stuff. and I like I like that stuff. Yeah. I, I just, I, I'm not into like horror flicks, but I like the demon stuff. So anyway, I want to thank you for coming on. It was good. I uh, what, now I know you're you're on Twitter because I would always send. I would say, "Come on my show, come on my show on Twitter." Because I'm a pain in the ass like that. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, at Catherine Dent. Okay, and now are you do do you do Instagram or anything? I'm trying to get up to speed, man. I'm okay. I'm, I'm I'm I have to I've, I I had a Twitter moratorium for a while, uh, <laughs> but I am on Twitter. So people follow Catherine. It's Catherine with a C. Okay, so get it right. And Dent is D E N T. If you can't. Like a dent in your car fender, yeah. as my insurance father used yeah. to say. And, and if you can't figure that out, you shouldn't even be on a computer. So follow her, and also people follow me uh, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet all the time, especially during these political times. And uh, some people get pissed. I just do jokes, and I get like these liberal 
uh, liberal and Republican, I'm conservative, and I'm more liberal, but they just start like arguing on my page. And I'm like, I'm just making a joke. I'm not saying this or that or this. So, but follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Go to Instagram. It's Cooper Talk One. I post who my guests are. I post a lot of uh, food recipes because, as you know, my other website is StopTheSalt.com. When I had the heart problem a few years ago, I had to change my diet completely. And I always like to cook, but I said, you know what? A lot of guys, especially, don't know how to cook, and they don't want to cook for just one. So this cookbook has 120 recipes. It has no pictures, so you're not going to get intimidated because we see a picture and we go, oh my god, I, I can't, you know, cook that. And there's just limited ingredients. So if you don't have cumin, don't worry, you don't need cumin. I don't make recipes with cumin. I have cumin, but I'm a cook. So go cumin. check that out. Cumin's great. So go to stopthesalt.com. You can get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. However, if you get it at stopthesalt.com, one. I'll sign it. I don't really care about that. But two, I'll make more money. And I care about that. So do that. So don't forget, follow at Catherine Dent. Follow at Cooper Talk. I'll talk to you guys next week. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamin, and I'll see you soon.